Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, and Eric, I, I have some important news that I need to share with you. Um, okay. Beginning today, I am going to be only a part-time member of the royal family. I am stepping back <laughs> from the front lines. I shall not be performing any further official royal duties, whatever they are. Um, I shall be attempting to become financially independent, and I will be living most of my life in North America. Uh, when I am in England, I will be staying at a large house that Prince Charles owns. Um, I didn't want to have to take this step, but the incessant hounding of the British tabloid media has driven me to it. I'm sure you can understand. I, I, I can. I hear where you're coming from. But does, this means you are no longer Kieran Duke of Buff Taffies. That is no longer your 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 former title. You're just plain old Kieran right. Mulvaney. That's 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 correct. That's mm, correct. Okay. I, I I still you know obviously plan on you know retaining uh, that full title for official correspondence, but okay. But I mean, otherwise, yes. <laughs> um, if you want uh, an alternative title to consider, I'm actually willing to name you the Duke of Boxing Podcasting. If if you want to be known as such, uh, you know, at, at one point when Ring Theory and the HBO podcast were both going strong, uh, I crowned myself Howard Stern style, the king of all boxing podcast media. <laughs> so if you want to be the Duke of Boxing Podcasting, I'll support that. I do think ever since I think that Chris Eubank Senior has retired the whole monocle and cloak thing. Somebody needs to pick that back up. I should. I could probably be doing that. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs a gimmick, a, a look in the in the boxing right? in the boxing media. The people who have who have really made it. Yeah, you know, Bert had his signature yep. look. Michael Katz had the neck brace. Right. You need your thing. I think the 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 monocle, the top hat, whatever you need to do. Yeah, I think a sort of silver-topped cane of some description as well in the cloak. I could just see myself showing up at the Boxing Writers' Dinner with that. I think that would get on great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like this for you. Let's keep workshopping this, but I think we're <laughs> we're headed somewhere. Um, meanwhile, about the Royals, uh, as you know, Kieran, I used to be an editor for a gossip magazine. Oh, that's right. So I had to keep up on the Royals, but... I could never bring myself to care about them at all. I'm I'm interested in celebrity gossip to a point, but my feeling is keep it to the celebrities who have some discernible who've, talent who've who have achieved something. something. Yeah, right. you know, like Brangelina, fine, Miley Cyrus, okay. The Royals and the Kardashians. I just don't right. care. I was uh, just gonna say that that must not include the Kardashians. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah. yeah, no, 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 no talent that I know of for many of them. Uh, but uh, you know, like Harry and Meghan might be a perfectly lovely couple, but uh, I just have zero interest. Uh, proud to say I didn't click a single link to any story about this news. I I saw the headlines and that was good enough for me. So um, you know, just figure out how to get Boris Johnson out of office. Let me know when that's done. Yeah, exactly. Not a fan of suits then. I take it. Uh, no, never seen it. Uh, and uh, yeah, the the fact that I realize so she is an actress or was or will be again or whatever. So maybe there is some talent there, but I'd never heard of her before she started dating right, Harry. So I don't think it counts. Indeed. indeed. I did like the wags who said, well, now she can portray herself in the upcoming <laughs> season of The Crown. <laughs> right, right. Which I have not watched The Crown. But maybe, uh, if I, maybe if I got caught up on The Crown, maybe I'd care more about the royals. But I haven't seen it, so I don't. Yeah, indeed. Well, neither have I, and I don't either. All right. Um, what I do care about is the Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Mm. Huh? And this uh, this week marks the 64th edition uh, of, of said podcast, which is not a bad haul. We're trucking along, doing pretty well. But this Friday marks an altogether greater Showtime Boxing milestone as Showbox, the new generation, notches up its 250th appearance, Eric. Mm. Not too bad. Uh, So to talk about that and to preview uh, Friday's card, we will be joined later on in the podcast by the one and only 
Gordon Hall, Senior Vice President of Production at Showtime, the executive producer of Showbox, and simultaneously one of the nicest and most knowledgeable men in boxing. Uh, we will also look ahead to some of next weekend's other fights, uh, including our friend Stephen Breadman, Edwards Charge, Julian J. Rock Williams, who goes up against Jason Rosario. But first, we look back at this weekend's action, and we begin with the Showtime Boxing Special Edition broadcast on the Ocean Casino Resort in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where on Friday, Clarissa Shields finally faced Ivana Habazin in a twice-delayed junior middleweight clash. And uh, Eric, when all was said and done, Habazin might well have been wishing that the postponements had turned into a cancellation. Uh, by the end of proceedings on Friday, she did not look like, look like a very happy bunny in there at all. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. She was doing a lot in the way of getting punched and not a whole lot in the way of landing punches. Uh, did not seem happy in there. Uh, this was all Claressa Shields, who at long last scored the first knockdown of her career, uh, dropping Habazin with body shots in the sixth round, on the advice, apparently, of ringside observer Andre yeah. Ward. Um, <laughs> and uh, just thoroughly dominated the fight throughout. It looked at times as if Shields might score the third stoppage of her pro career, but Habazin literally held on to survive the full 10 rounds, uh, albeit 10 two-minute rounds, a factor that continues to work against Shields' KO percentage. And Shields cruised to a wide unanimous decision by scores of 99-89, 100-90, and 100-89, I don't really see how you could arrive at any score other than 189. No, nor do I. I was thinking that very same thing just now, yeah. Yeah, those other two scores are a little weird, but we have uh, other more egregious scorecards to dedicate our time to this week, so I guess we'll let those slide. Um, Anyway, with the win, Clarissa adds a 154-pound title to the 160 and 168-pound crown she already secured in a total of just 10 pro bouts, thus becoming the fastest boxer, male or female, to claim title belts in three weight classes. Kieran, how significant an achievement is that? And what did you like about Shields' performance? And where can she still improve? So to deal with Shields specifically first, um, I was actually really impressed with her jab um, and her hand speed and her footwork. There were times... It was particularly early in the bout when I was watching that and thinking, you know, she's actually turning into a legitimately really nice boxer to watch. Not a really nice female boxer to watch, like a really nice boxer. Um, I, I was really enjoying watching the way she controlled the space in there, um, how relaxed she can be in the ring. Uh, the way she's mixing up her punches is really nice. And you know, as you talked about, you know, the way she she was really digging to the body at times. Uh, she had good upper body movement herself at mm. times. I, I liked how relaxed she is when she, when she was being crowded. You know, she was completely unconcerned when Habazim was on her and, and was trying to sort of maul her in there, completely unbothered. She was perfectly happy to go to the ropes and, 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 and wait for the opportunity to get herself some space. Um, I, I guess where, there's a, where she could still improve, and she actually talked about this, she admitted this herself when she was talking to Jim Gray, uh, is that she can get overexcited when there's an opening where she feels she's got her opponent in trouble. Uh, it's sort of ironic for somebody who lands so many power punches, but you know, when she gets her opponent hurt, she can get a bit sloppy when she's throwing that overhand right. Um, mm. You know, uh, it's, it's not as straight or as short as it can be. It's not as good as some of her other punches. So, uh, you know, if she can find a way to dial it back uh, a smidgen there, I, th- I think she'll be even even more effective. But she does, and especially since she's, you know, gotten together with John David Jackson, she just continues to me to seem like she's improving from fight to fight. So um, as for how significant it is, well, I guess we should point out, I think she's only been an undisputed champion at 160, um, although... I don't really think there was any real doubt that she was the best at 168 when she was right. fighting there. And you look at the, the fighters at 154, she's already beaten one of the other claimants to a title uh, at a higher weight class. Um, 
you know, it's it's hard to imagine that she probably isn't already the best at 154, but still, it's worth worth stating, as we would state with any boxer. Um, and the caveat, obviously, is still, as much as it is getting better, the depth of opposition isn't great. Um, right. You know, and Habazin, she just wasn't good. Um, she simply didn't know how to how to cope or adapt. But, hey, you can only be who's in front of you. And as far as I can tell, there's nobody that Clarissa Shields has been dodging in any of those weight classes. And... You know, Christina Hammer, her previous opponent, I think was actually pretty good. It's just that Clarissa Shields, at least in these weight classes in which she's competing, just seems to be that much better than everybody else. Uh, She just seems to be streets ahead at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Although before I get to uh, my thoughts on on her fighting, you know, I like to focus on the important things in boxing. So let me just say I thoroughly enjoyed Shields' choreographed dance routine ring. It was great. Yeah, Yeah. it was kind of I was watching it and enjoying it and thinking, you know, this is a classier, cooler version of an Adrian Broner ring walk. Like yeah. his, you know, he's got some dance moves too, and they're sort of fun in their way, but this was this was miles ahead of, uh, of anything yeah. he's done. Um, but yeah, in the ring, Shields fought well. She certainly looked good at 154 pounds. No indication whatsoever to me that she had come down too far in weight. Uh-huh. The body shots were a nice addition to the repertoire. If she does more of that, I think she will absolutely start racking up some knockouts. Um I don't have a lot to critique. She boxed well. She didn't get hit a whole lot. Habazin landing just 49 punches in 10 rounds. Uh, the critique is that she was too good for Habazin, and we all knew that going in, and she's too good for almost everyone out there, and yet she still isn't finishing opponents off. That's a, about yeah. the only criticism I can uh, I, I can point in her direction. Yeah, and again, as you mentioned, it is that, that two-minute round thing, and yeah, I just don't see a good reason for it. It's uh, I, I think, you know, they deserve the opportunity to fight three minute rounds. And I think that would make a difference. Yeah. And we've seen it with some of the other women fighters out there. They have there have been some female fights with three minute rounds. So uh, I don't see why uh, why they can't give it a shot with Clarissa. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but of course, the problem, as we've both just alluded to, really, is where she goes from here. Um, as we both said, Habazin was poor, at least relative to Clarissa Shields, really far short of her standard. Um, and she's far from the first Shields opponent to be so heavily outmatched. Um, so Alicia Napoleon Espinosa, who featured in the opening bout of the night, was clearly being set up as Shields' possible next opponent at 168. And while that fight, that opening bout was happening, I was like, wow, she's, she's not going to last against Clarissa either. Right. Um, and, and anyway, she lost a close decision to Aileen Sedoros and... She made it quite clear afterward, uh, laughing, basically, uh, in response to um, Jim Gray's question about whether she would fight Clarissa next. Uh, no. Right. <laughs> she all but said, I've got a lot more to do. So um, so as much as Shields calls herself the Guo, and I think we're both happy to agree with that, um, at this point, she's still only 24. And yet she must find herself thinking, well, what options are there realistically for her to, do, to test herself now? Yeah, there, there aren't many. Uh, not only did Napoleon Espinosa lose, but on Saturday night, uh, Franchon Cruz Desern lost too. And now nobody was really talking about Cruz Desern as a Shields opponent, but you and I were both ringside at the yep. T-Mobile Arena in 2016 when they turned pro against one another, and Cruz Desern gave Clarissa a tough four-round fight, and she hadn't lost since. So maybe a rematch could have made sense, uh, except she lost a a split decision on Saturday to Alejandra Jimenez. So maybe Jimenez becomes an option back up at 168. I did see her calling Shields out, but 
I don't know. Most of the best female boxers are at lightweight and below. Yeah. There, there just aren't many elite opponents available for Clarissa, even as she spreads herself across three weight divisions. Yeah. Um, except she indicated she could do a fourth division. She said she thinks she can get down to 147. So wow. if so, Shields versus Cecilia Brakus. That that, that is the thing. Yeah, it's clearly the fight to make, and sooner rather than later, since Cecilia is 38 years old. But yeah, at 154, 160, and 168, the pickings are slim. And uh, as you noted, uh, Ceteros was like, uh, yeah, get back to me in a year or two. After I've had a few more fights, we'll see about fighting Shields. Um, but as long as we're on the topic of, of Ceteros, I have to say, her fight with Napoleon Espinosa was as good a women's boxing match as I've ever seen. Um, I, I don't want to declare it the greatest female fight ever. I, I feel like I'm not quite qualified to say that. Um, those who have more historical knowledge of women's boxing go ahead and get in my mentions and tell me what I'm overlooking. Cause I'm sure I'm overlooking something, but I can't think of a better fight that I've ever seen. Uh, non-stop action for 10 rounds close all the way, a mild upset, some drama in round two when Sideros landed a sudden left hook that sent Napoleon Espinosa down and it ended up going the 10 round distance with all three judges scoring at 95, 94, which is exactly how I had it. I think Steve Farhood had it a bit wider for Sideros. Yeah. But tremendous fight. Great win for Sideros. Bad result for Clarissa Shields. And uh, if Ceteros isn't interested in fighting Shields, then I hope she gives Napoleon Espinosa a rematch. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the co-main event, uh, Javon Boots Ennis tore through Bakhtiar Iobov, dropping him twice in the first round, as uh, as we predicted, uh, Iobov's plow-forward style worked against him. Uh, Ennis pummeled Iobov at will until referee Earl Brown stopped the contest at 34 seconds of round four. Iobov was still on his feet and complained about the stoppage, but I thought it was warranted. This yeah. was just not a remotely competitive fight, and Yubov wasn't slipping anything. Uh, Kieran, what did you think of the stoppage, uh, and what did you think of Ennis's performance? Yeah, I thought the stoppage was perfectly fine. I mean, it, it was one of those deals where maybe it seemed a bit odd because the referee's body language wasn't indicating beforehand that he was on the verge of doing it. He just suddenly stepped in there. But, you know, but you know, when the, when the head of the commission tells you in the corner this guy gets one more round and that's it. Right. Um, and then at the start of that round, the guy starts getting shellacked as much as he has done at any other point. I mean, fair enough. He doesn't really have much choice, really. And it's one of those, yeah, it was, it was one of those fights that can be dangerous when you've got a guy who plows forward, who's tough as teak, apparently, and, and you've got a superior guy just teeing off on him. So perfectly fine with that. Um, and there was no way he was turning that fight around. Right. Um, uh, it actually wasn't a great performance from Earl Brown, actually. He did allow Ennis to do the old Muhammad Ali thing a couple of <laughs> right, times, didn't he? Right. Uh, hold his opponent with one hand and tee him up with the other. And Ennis pushed him off with his shoulder a few times. But honestly, that, he could have tied that left hand behind his back and still probably <laughs> done all kinds of damage. He was just a vastly superior uh, fighter in there. We did both pick him to win by KO again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did both think because Yubov could have a little bit of bottom weave that it might take him a couple rounds to, to get into it. Well, not at all. Um, there wasn't really any awkward bobbing and weaving from Yubov at all. He, he's forgotten about that. Uh, he just came <laughs> straight forward and Ennis had no problem finding him. I, I mean, look, I mean, Ennis, I mean, did, neither of us picked him in our like young fighters draft, right? Right. So he hadn't fought on Showbox under under our watch as podcasters yet when we did the draft. I remember he was on my list of like 
guys to consider just beyond the guys I ended up picking. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if we had done I that draft, saying that. yeah, if we'd done it just a couple months later and he'd yeah. he'd he'd fought on Showbox uh, in a in a fight we were covering for the podcast, I I bet one of us would have drafted him. I'm sure because I was watching that fight, thinking about that and thinking, God, we are idiots. <laughs> I mean, what a, I think he's a tremendous prospect. Um, yeah. You know, his hand speed's ridiculous. I mean, the variety of punches, the way he's moving to body and head was was terrific. I mean, when he got caught, he got caught a few times, but it was obvious he just had no respect for Yubov at all, and so wasn't concerned about that. Um, my main takeaway is it is really time for him to step up a level and to be moved up a level. I think we found out as much about him as we're going to against opponents like this. And I think it's probably time for him to take a significant step up to prove that he's more than a prospect, that, that he is a contender. Um, and, and I was thinking about who might be a good person for him to fight. I was thinking maybe somebody like a Saddam Ali, a guy mm. who's got skills and experience, you know, who's fought at a good level, but, you know, probably, you know, but not the size or, you know, maybe even, you know, a, a veteran, maybe even he's ready for like a Jose Cito Lopez or a Ray Robinson, somebody like that. I think he's ready. Yeah. You know, it, it, maybe he's flattering to deceive because he's just not fighting good enough opposition or, but I think he's ready. I think he's that good. Yeah, I like Josecito as as an opponent for him. I hadn't I hadn't started brainstorming who who could be that next step, but that's a good like Lopez is never an easy night unless you're like right. really elite, unless you're like Canelo Alvarez. Um, and even so, I feel like uh, Josecito might have given him a couple problems before wilting. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's he's definitely ready for that sort of step up, absolutely. And uh, and and one quick thing to add again, because I focus on the important stuff. Uh, <laughs> is it just me, or did Boots's ring attire look like it was made out of the trees from the Lorax? Something like that. Exactly. Right? I was I was watching some of the stuff on Twitter. Like, what the hell animal has fur like that? It, <laughs> it's got to be extinct because yeah, of that no. outfit. Yeah. yeah, you know, he's definitely he was definitely wearing a thneed. <laughs> Everybody needs a thneed, uh, Kieran. Yes, indeed. this is the important stuff, indeed. Yes. All right, and it was a big boxing weekend on the boardwalk. Uh, as one day after Shields beat Habazine at Ocean Casino, Joe Smith and Jesse Hart met in light heavyweight action at the Hard Rock. Uh, Philadelphia's Hart really wanted to avenge his mentor, Bernard Hopkins, who was knocked out of the ring by Smith in the final fight of his career, uh, to the extent of you know, even wearing an executioner's mask to the ring and, and all of that. But even though he did buzz Smith at times in an exciting fight, he also fell short, although he did stay in the ring against the self-described yes. common man. Uh, Smith knocked Hart down in the seventh round and wound up a split decision winner. Um, and even Hart's promoter, Bob Arum, was outraged by the 95-94 card for his fighter. Uh, the other cards were 98-91 and 97-92 for Smith. I am going to put this ball on this tee for you here, Eric. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts about those scorecards? And also, what does this result mean for the careers of both men? Yeah, let me hit the ball off the tee first and uh, address the scoring. Uh, 98-91 and 97-92, both fine. Uh, but... I am fixing to go full Teddy Atlas here about that third card. 95-94 for Jesse Hart. Uh, The judge's name is James Kinney. Looked him up. He's been a judge for five years. I don't see any world title fights on his resume. He basically does undercards and club shows. I can't tell you anything about him beyond that. But I can tell you that the New Jersey Commission, which has suspended judges in the past, needs mm-hmm. to think long and hard about giving James Kinney more assignments because that is as bad a scorecard as you'll ever see. That is right there with Adelaide Bird's infamous 118-110. Just as you couldn't possibly reasonably get to 10 rounds for Canelo in the first Golovkin fight, you can't possibly reasonably get to six rounds for Jesse Hart in yeah. this fight. 
four was the max, and that's a big reach. It was more like two or three, like the other two judges had it. That is a terrible scorecard. And if we'd had one more judge at ringside doing that bad a job, yeah. then you're taking food off Joe Smith's table. Uh, just abominable. Uh, I am keeping an ear out for that name in New Jersey and New York fights going forward. James Kinney. I hope I don't hear it again for a long time until he's undergone more training and testing. Um, On to the fight. As I said last week, I was looking forward to this one, thought it was a tough call, uh, but you and mm. I were both leaning toward Jesse yep. Hart being the favorite based on recent form and maybe a little more versatility in his skill set. Uh, nevertheless, once Joe Smith started hurting him in the second round, I said to myself, oh yeah, this makes sense. This this is a, a perfectly logical potential outcome, even if it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Because Joe Smith is a puncher. He yeah. hurts guys when he lands. Uh, I was ringside when he sparked Andrew Fonfara in one round. You were ringside when he ejected Bernard Hopkins <laughs> from the ring and the sport of boxing. Uh, even when he lost to Sullivan Barrera, he scored a knockdown. He's a puncher, and when he's healthy, he's dangerous against anyone. I'd love to see him in with an Alader Alvarez, Sergio Ramirez, yeah. Jean Pascal. Uh, he lost badly to Bivol, uh, so uh, no no need for him to fight Bivol again. But I'd be fine with Joe Smith getting a crack at anyone else in the light heavyweight top 10. His technique isn't great, but he's a puncher, and that makes him viable against anyone. Uh, and as for Jesse Hart... This was a really disappointing performance. He had no answers. Um, I don't think it's the weight class. Um, he, he beat Sullivan Barrera at 175, his previous fight. He just needs to go back to the drawing board, get a win under his belt, come back. But it, it's pretty clear he's not quite elite. He's a, he's a fringe yep. contender slash gatekeeper and not, uh, to my eyes, a serious title contender. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in other Saturday night action at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas, Jaime Munguia made his middleweight debut a successful one as he scored an 11th round TKO win over Spike O'Sullivan. It wasn't completely smooth sailing as he was clipped at the end of the third round and had a point deducted for low blows. But in the end, Kieran, was this the sort of performance you expected from Munguia? Actually, in some respects, it was a bit of a better one, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> at least early on, Munguia was showing head movement, which I don't recall him ever showing before. Um, and by and large, I thought throughout the fight, um, and Sergio was talking about this during the commentary, um, his punches were shorter and snappier and straighter and faster than usual. Um, I imagine this is, you know, a consequence of his now being trained by Eric Morales, which is an arrangement that I'd completely missed. I, I, had, I, I don't know how I'd missed that happening, mm. but apparently that's the thing. Right. Um, uh, so, you know, if he does do that, that that's going to work in his favor in the middleweight division. You know, like, a, as I said before, like a junior middleweight, he's essentially bullying opponents um, and he isn't going to be able to do that at 160. So, and so I assumed he wasn't going to get very far at 160 because I didn't know that he could adapt or improve his skill set. But based on Saturday night, maybe he can adapt and improve his skill set so that he takes advantage of being a lighter, quicker middleweight as opposed to a bigger, stronger junior middleweight. Um, that said, his defense at times can still be porous. Um, yes. As you noted, O'Sullivan cracked him at the end of the third, and, and it did take Mungia a couple of rounds to get back on track. Um, and O'Sullivan did show exactly why he was handpicked to be that first middleweight opponent. He came forward in straight lines. He offered like that stout but predictable offense and really not much in the way of defense. So it was the perfect setup for Mungia's middleweight debut. Um, but uh, I thought really, you know, it was just good an outing as one might reasonably have, have expected. And, uh, you know, David Lemieux probably was looking at that fight thinking, hey, I look pretty good right now because I, <laughs> I got that guy right out of there. So, But uh, honestly, I thought it was a pretty decent performance from Mungia. 
All right, I was uh, a little lower on it, perhaps, than, okay. than you were. To me, it was sort of a, and he is who I thought he was. Not not right. who I previously thought he was uh, after he brutalized Saddam Ali when we thought he was uh, he, he was going real far. But, you know, who, who we've thought he was for the past year or so. Right. To me, a very fun TV fighter, uh, but not an elite talent. I still saw in there a guy who's, oh, I would expect will be going in the next year or so unless he's matched very cautiously. Yeah, he does not. I think he's looking to be somewhere in the rankings to fight Demetrius Andrade, and I think that's a nightmare for him. Yes. Yeah, that's not a not a good idea if they want to keep him undefeated a while longer. No. All right, everyone, let's uh, take a little break and let's take a little trip in the time machine, shall we? Uh, the date is July 21st, 2001. The place is Bally's Atlantic City. And the occasion is the first ever edition of a new Showtime boxing franchise, Showbox, the new generation. And in the main event, lightweight Leo Doreen stopped Martin O'Malley in the ninth round. And six months later, Doreen would win an alphabet title at 135 pounds, becoming the first Showbox alum to be able to call himself a world champion. And he was not the last. Incredibly, 81 boxers who have appeared on Showbox over the years have gone on to become champions. And some of the names are real standouts. Deontay Wilder, Andre Ward, Carl Frotch, Timothy Bradley, Erislandi Lara, Sean Porter, Gary Russell Jr., Tyson Fury, Guillermo Riga. Badu Jack, Jesse Vargas, Demetrius Andrade, the Charlo brothers, all among the names to have appeared on the venerable franchise. Uh, this Friday will be Showbox's 250th episode, and the triple header will bring the total number of fights on the show to 596 and counting. And here now to talk about the series run, to preview this Friday's card, is the man behind it all, the vice president of production for Showtime Networks and the executive producer of Showbox, our friend Gordon Hall. Gordon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. Uh, happy to be, be on with you, too. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Gordon. All right. A very simple question to begin with. There have been 593 fights so far in Showbox history. Please rank them in order from worst to best, understanding there is only one acceptable order. <laughs> <laughs> that will take too much time for your podcast. All right, we'll do an alternative. I'd question. love to, though. <laughs> you probably do have the, the rankings in your mind, don't you? Right. You just well, left you know a piece I mean, of paper in the office. <laughs> you know, obviously there's memorable fights. You know, we can go through, you know, a number of them, but... Um, there's there's a few that stand out uh, more than others, but I, I I don't have anything that I could say other than you know there is a lot of fights. <laughs> yes, you know, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Well, and so that makes me think. You know, there are a lot of fights, and as you look back on the last whatever eighteen nineteen years or so, what do you think is the key, or are the keys to the longevity of Showbox? Well, I think the uniqueness of the series. I mean. Frankly, I don't know of another series that necessarily is, you know, specifically geared towards, you know, young prospects match tough. Um, you know, I think uh, to see fighters in the infancies of their careers and, uh, you know, Showbox had that unique and different uh, purpose and definition that was unlike any other series. Um, and I think trying to, I think every time you turn into a Showbox show, you can hopefully plan on seeing competitive matchups mm -hmm. and uh, uh, with fighters that are top prospects or certainly one out of the two in that matchup or, and uh, are top prospects and, you know, and, and hopefully a future champion. I mean, 
you know, we talk about, you know, how many shows we've had and, you know, how many champions we had. And roughly every three fights, you're going to hopefully you're going to see mm. a fighter who's going to go on and become a world champion. Yeah. And, and, and Kieran was was joking, of course, about, you know, ranking all the fights. But uh, are there any fights that leap out at you from over the years as being defining matchups, the, the kind of fights for you? that encapsulated what Showbox is all about in the same way that Barrera McKinney was always cited as the definitive bout on HBO Boxing After Dark? Is there one or a couple of fights from Showbox that you think you look back on and say, yeah, that is the quintessential Showbox fight? Well, the most memorable, um, I think, of all the Showbox fights was probably the Tim Bradley versus Junior Witter fight. And the reason mm. I say that is because what we try to do on Showbox is show top prospects. And we like to show them multiple times. And we like to advance them from turning from prospects to contenders. In the case of Timothy Bradley, we had the opportunity to have him grow from prospect to contender to world champion as we mm. traveled over to England uh, he was making his fourth showbox appearance, as I recall, and facing, as I said, Junior Whittler, uh, you know, and when he went over there as the underdog and won that title, all of us that went over there uh, from our talent and our production crew, we felt we won right alongside of him because it sort of encapsulates what we try to do on showbox. So it's very rare that we have, you know, world title fights. So, um, you know, that, that to me is, is one of the, you know, the biggest fights we had. I mean, there's other memorable fights. I mean, I always bring up the Eva Welder and Courtney Burton because it right. was such a dramatic fight. Of course that happened 200, uh, you know, in 2004, <laughs> right. uh, the, the, you know, there's other things like Andre Ward was, you know, on Showbox multiple times. And it was back in the time when we, we, we didn't, we weren't able to match him all that tough all the time, but he was Andre Ward and he was a gold medalist and he was what everybody thought was a sure thing, uh, future champion, though he wasn't anybody that people are, you know, were originally loving in the ring. Right. He was very slick. He was uh, obviously extremely skilled, but I think in his fourth appearance, he ended up uh, taking on Edison Miranda. And in that fight, Edison is a bit of a bull, and Andre Ward bullied the bull, and he beat him in a rough fight that I think really helped elevate um, Andre's profile as not just being a pretty boxer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can't talk about showbox without talking about Nick Charles. Right. Yep. I know you two knew him well. Yep. He was a wonderful person, and... Uh, He's always part of Showbox, and his last show on Showbox, it wasn't about the fights. It was about Nick and his last show and what he had to say during that show and at the top of that show and telling everybody that he had to leave to go fight cancer. And, uh, you know, that was a uh, certainly a really uh, memorable show for us. Right. One of the very nicest people in boxing, Nick Charles. Yeah. So we've mentioned um, quite a few times already how many champions have been on Showbox. Um, I don't know if this is an odd question, but when you're looking at candidates to appear on the show, how much of your decision-making is guided by thoughts of whether they have the look of future champions? Or is that kind of a fool's errand when you're looking at fighters so early in their careers? 
No, it's definitely a uh, part of the criteria. Um, You know, how do we, how do you judge a fighter? I mean, when he's young and he's anywhere from, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old as a Devin Haney might've been, or a Jerron Ennis when they first, you know, get on the scene, you're, you're, are they any good? How do you know that they're any good? Well, you're going to look at their amateur, you know, um, you're going to look at the fact that, uh, you know, in this Friday's fight, we have, uh, you know, Vladimir Shishkin, he had 330 amateur fights. I think he lost 20, you know, I mean, certainly the American fighters don't have as many amateur fights, but Jericho O'Quinn will have 120 amateur fights with only six losses and debuting on Showbox on Friday. So, um, you have to look at the amateur, you know, that, that certainly gives you an idea and their amateur, what tournaments they may have won, who they may have beaten, you know, um, as, uh, in the amateurs. I mean, Ruben Villa, who we're going to see on January 31st, beat Shakur Stevenson in the amateurs. He right. beat Devin Haney in the amateurs. He beat Gary Antonio Russell in the, uh, in the amateurs. So, um, uh, that is a good, you know, gives you a good idea of, I mean, certainly we can see video now of, of fighters all the time, you know, which is great. This computer we have in front of us, and, <laughs> and, you know, going on the Internet, you know, we can research these fighters. Uh, we can actually see how they may fight. So amateur background is important. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, you you mentioned uh, some of the names that'll be coming up uh, on episode two fifty, uh, Shishkin and and O'Quinn. Uh, before we uh, fully dive into that show, one more question about the first two hundred forty nine. Uh, I'm curious about sure. surprises over the years. Is there anybody who went on to greater success than perhaps you imagined when they were on Showbox? And on the flip side, anyone who has maybe fallen a little short, who you thought was headed for greatness when you saw him on Showbox, and then they didn't pan out? Well, disappointments, uh, one that comes off the top of my head is, was Francisco Bajado. Oh, yeah. If you remember yeah. him yeah. from Mexico, or Mexican Olympian, as I recall, yeah. uh, was signed uh, with, I think it was Main Events and Shelly Finkel, and, uh, uh, you know, everybody thought it was a sure thing. Um, and, uh, that was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, you know, when you talk about fighters, this is for Showbox, and who came in as the B side in fights and lost on Showbox, and then went on to win a world title would have been Ray Beltran. Oh, Uh, yes. And and I'll tell you, I, I, I remember going into his dressing room and specifically telling him, uh, you know what, you did a great job tonight. You know, and he had been better known probably as Manny Pacquiao's sparring partner. Right, right. Than he was as being a fighter with a lot of potential. um, You know, he won, uh, you know, late in his career. But uh, still, um, he was somebody that uh, I think he lost to Sharif Bogaray on Showbox and he lost to Luis Ramos Jr. on Showbox. Hmm. And wow. um, ended up having a, anyway, a better career than either of those guys. Right, right, exactly. So he, you know, he went on, and you know, if you talk about somebody that's the underdog, he he would have been an example of it. Oh, right. Yeah, great examples. Um, all right. So moving on from episodes one through two hundred and forty-nine to episode two hundred and fifty. Uh, 
This Friday, uh, as we mentioned, from the Winter Vegas Casino Resort in Sloan, Iowa, uh, the main event sees super middleweight action. As Vladimir Shishkin takes on Ulysses Sierra. Um, we saw Shishkin on Showbox in August. Uh, he looked very impressive indeed, uh, dismantling DeAndre Ware. Um, he's just 9-0, and but he's already got some really solid wins on his resume, including a very impressive KO of Najib Mohammadi. Um, how high... You've already talked about him and mentioned his great amateur record, but how high do you think his ceiling could be, Shiskin? And, and what does Sierra have to do to stop him? Well, um, I like Shishkin a lot. And, um, you know, he is certainly, uh, you know, he's got height, he's got strength, he's got reach, and he also, you know, since elevating, you know, his opposition, he's, he's defeating them, and he's knocked out four of his last, you know, right knocked out four of his last five opponents, you know, and, and really against some better opposition. Um, and even against when he faced DeAndre Ware, which was, uh, you know, the first time that we had seen him. DeAndre Ware is a very good fighter, a very solid fighter, and uh, had put in a great e- effort over Chem Killich, and then he beat Ronald Ellis. And, uh, you know, Shishkin basically dominated him. He took Ware's heart away. Um, and, you know, Shishkin at 28 years old, because of the fact, you know, oh, he's a showbox fighter. He is a prospect. He's not, I know, but he is 28. And that's because he, you know, had 330 amateur fights. But I do think that even after that one appearance, he is a fighter that people are starting to start, are starting to talk about. I mean, you know, Ulysses Sierra, I mean, he is, you know, was a, uh, you know, he wasn't a top amateur, um, and uh, he's out of California, did not have a big amateur career, but, um, you know, he had three camps uh, with Canelo, and he's been in with the Kovalev camps and the Andre Ware, and he'll tell you that he has learned, you know, his work ethic. Um, you know, he's a boxer, and, uh, you know, can now all of that experience and everything that he learned in those camps translate to a victory on Friday? I don't know, but he's undefeated and untested and, you know, he's going to get an opportunity to fight a very good fighter in Vladimir Shishkin and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to that one. Uh, the co-main sees another returning prospect, the man uh, who sports what is currently Kieran's favorite boxing nickname, Shojahan, descendant of Tamerlane Ergachev, <laughs> uh, who takes on Adrian Diamante Estrella in a lightweight contest. We've seen Ergachev twice on Showbox, and his outings have been strongly contrasting. He was taking the distance in a uh, clear but not especially inspiring decision win over Michael Fox. And then he blew out Abdiel Ramirez in four rounds. Which do you think is a better representation of what Ergashev can be? And, and which do you expect to show up uh, against Estrella? Yeah, you know, um, going back to, uh, you know, Ergashev's career, I mean, we first saw him, I think it was against Sonny Fredrickson, and he beat Sonny Fredrickson. Right. Um, I believe that was on Showbox. And, uh, he, you know, he's in his fourth appearance. He's had 200 amateur fights. I, I think, you know, Ergashev, you know, he's now ranked in, you know, all four of the sanctioning bodies. Um, you know, he's had victories over two undefeated fighters and, and, and you know, in and, and, and a 24 and four veteran. And, 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 you know, with Estrella, I think it's another case of, um, you know, fighting a another type of um veteran um 
because that's what he has to do at this point in his career. You know, he's mm. not going he's not going to be challenged by fighters that are not further along in their careers. And uh, you know, Estrella, you know, I think he's a really solid opponent for Ergashev at this point. Though he has a lot of KOs, I see him more as a boxer who can brawl a little. You know, he did have some amateur uh, experience. He's faced some undefeated fighters. Um, you know, his last fight, you know, he lost to Tony Lewis, who we'd seen on Showbox in the past, a good, Tony's a good fighter, you know, and that was, uh, I think, a split decision loss in which Lewis came in a lot heavier, but they, they, uh, they, he took, uh, Estrella took the fight anyway. You know, Estrella has beaten some undefeated fighters in Oscar Duarte. He's, you know, beaten a faded Demarcus Corley. Uh, he's still got something in the tank. And uh, if you're Estrella, you know, you got to beat people like Ergashev at this point. And if you're Ergashev, who everybody's, you know, starting to talk about and get ranked in all four sanctioning bodies, this is another uh, test uh, in which you, if you come out uh, with, uh, you know, a decisive victory, you're going to be in the, you know, with some sort of title eliminator, uh, you know, type of conversation before the end of the year. Um, and Friday's opener is an eight-rounder in the super flyweight division. Uh, Jericho O'Quinn, the A-side here, he's, he can, comes in with a record of 13-0-1 and, and eight KOs. Uh, his opponent, Oscar Vasquez, is 32 years old with a record of 15-2-1 with just three KOs. You've already mentioned O'Quinn and, and his good amateur record. Uh, this is, as you mentioned, his showbox debut. So what are you hoping to see from him and what can you tell us about him and how hopeful are you that Vasquez will test him? Well... I saw him in, in Flint, Michigan, um, earlier this year, uh, he fought, um, uh, James Gordon Smith who fought on Showbox as well. And, um, uh, it was a really exciting fight. And, um, Jericho Quinn is a very exciting fighter. He's a boxer mover, but with, with a uh, great skill uh, you know, he does come in, as I mentioned before, you know, 120 amateur fights. He was a national youth champion. He's 24 years old. He has everything that would be a, the type of fighter that we would have on Showbox, uh, though nobody has really seen him. He fought off TV uh, in his last fight. I don't think it would be, this will be his national television debut. Um, and he is in a weight class that you know, we don't see very often, right. Um, you know, 115 pounds. So, uh, but I think that he has a lot of promise. Dimitri Salida's promoter will say he's the best super flyweight in, in the United States. And, you know, we had Nanito Donaire, if you, you know, years ago on Showbox, and I think we had Vic Darchini and those are the only two right. that come <laughs> to mind of other super flyweights that might've fought on Showbox. you know, Vasquez, uh, you know, an older veteran, you know, 32 years old. Um, and, you know, I saw his last fight, uh, which was a draw and, you know, he's, uh, he's going to be shorter. He's going to, um, he's aggressive type of fighter. So I think a pretty good style matchup. Um, and he worked throughout, uh, all eight rounds in his last fight. And I expect him to do the same and, uh, you know, be the, uh, the aggressive pressuring uh, fighter in this matchup. So hopefully an entertaining opening 
bout mm-hmm. and uh, with O'Quinn distinguishing himself. Mm-hmm. Right. By the way, a total aside here, but you mentioned Dimitri Salida, and I think I've said this to you before, but if you just asked me a few years ago which professional boxer is going to end up becoming the most successful promoter, I would never have imagined Dimitri Salida would be doing as well as he's doing as a promoter. He's, he's really killing it. Yeah, you know what? He's done a great job. He's very, you know, um, uh, very uh, determined. And, you know, when, you, when you're when you in um, a position like we are and we have this series Showbox and we need to, you know, we need to develop other promoters as well. And, mm. uh, you know, because a lot of the top promoters, they have their own platforms. They're not, you know, though years ago we worked a lot with uh, Golden Boy and worked a lot, a lot with Top Rank. And, um, you know, but they have their own platforms now. Right. You know, they're not, you know, we're not necessarily working with them. And, um, you know, so developing promoters like, you know, Salida Promotions. We recently, you know, done a couple of shows with Samson Lukowicz, who's, of course, been around for a very long time and known as an excellent matchmaker and who has some very talented fighters. Uh, Mayweather Promotions and, you know, Lou DeBella's worked with us for mm. a long time with Banner Promotions. But, uh, you know, to have somebody like Dimitri come along who uh, is bringing a lot of uh, talented fighters, uh, you know, like Clarissa Shields, who just fought this past mm-hmm. Friday night, of course, uh, Dimitri, uh, uh, we, we've had, uh, you know, that was our sixth show with Clarissa and Dimitri is of course her promoter. So, uh, yeah, he's doing a great job. And I think these, I think Shishkin's real deal. I think, you know, so Johanner Gashev, you know, of course we had Jarrell Miller earlier, one of right. the uh, early fighters. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, final topic here. Uh, you're, you're not resting on your laurels. Uh, almost as soon as episode 250 wraps, number 251 will be right along on January 31st. We have another triple header, this time from Shreveport, Louisiana, headlined by a 10-round featherweight contest between Ruben Villa and Alexei Collado. This will be Villa's fourth showbox appearance in 12 months. Uh, in his three outings last year, he scored three unanimous decision wins to run his record to 17-0 with just five knockouts. It's pretty clear by now that he isn't a puncher, but he is a beautiful boxer, and you must be high on him to have brought him back so many times. How close is he, in your estimation, Gordon, to graduating from showbox to Showtime Championship Boxing? Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see some more out of him at this point. Um, you know, he's sort of in a difficult, uh, you know, situation because of the fact, as you mentioned, you know, he's not a big puncher. Uh, he's a volume puncher that um, is, you know, someone that has to be matched properly in order to make him uh, look uh, his right. Best. Um, you know, the competition he's had to date, he's faced, you know, a number of fighters with good records, but, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't see him, you know, because he is already 17 and oh, he may have something bigger by, by the end of the year, but I, I'd sort of look for him more in the early of 2021, uh, to get that title shot. Mm. But as I said, he beat some very good fighters in the amateurs and Shakur Stevenson and, you know, uh, Devin Haney and those two have done pretty well for themselves. The potential that via has and, and why, you know, why we'll have them back. 
You know, the other interesting thing on that card is we have Tarasha Shellstuck, who has fought on Showbox in the past. Then he had some managerial problems, and he's only fought like once in the last couple years. He was, you know, another uh, bronze medalist, uh, had a big amateur career, came over with high expectations a little later because of the fact he did have a long amateur career. But, uh, you know, we're looking for him to bounce back and really see if, you know, what what the future holds for him. Mm. All right, Gordon, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And congratulations on steering Showbox to 250 episodes. Let's get back together after another 250 episodes. <laughs> yeah, we'll all, I'm it. sure we'll all be around. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Thanks Gordon. Our thanks again to Gordon. Uh, it's time for our predictions. Uh, but first, let's do the first score update of 2020. Uh, oh, we both... <laughs> no, we have to. It's in the contract. We have to do it. I'd love to skip over it, but I'm afraid we can't, Kieran. Uh, we both scored no points for Cedarus Espinoza, uh, and we both scored two points for the NSKO, neither of, neither of us nailing the exact round. Uh, but in the main event, you said Shields KO7. And I said, Shields, unanimous decision. Uh, you were probably feeling pretty good when Clarissa oh, yeah. scored that knockdown <laughs> in the sixth. Uh, but alas, uh, 2020 is going similarly to 2019 so far. Three points for Raskin, one point for Mulvaney. That means Raskin leads 5-3. Uh, and uh, I'm not so sure after the final results of 2019 if you can continue to claim that you have me right <laughs> where you want me. Or, are you going to claim it anyway? Or do you have a, do you have a new spin for 2020? I'm playing the long game, Eric. <laughs> okay, that's you that's, foolishly that's... are dividing it up into year year long bites. I'm, I I'm, see. I'm looking way beyond that. Okay, so I'm putting the over under at number of times Kieran says he's playing the long game this year at uh, let's say uh, twelve and a half. That's where I'll set the line. I'll take uh, the over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, be as it may. To quote the late great Harold Letterman, be as it may, uh, you trail by two points and you pick first for the only fight we're picking this week, the Showbox main event, 10 rounds, Shishkin versus Sierra. What's your pick? <laughs> okay, Eric. <laughs> um, yeah, boy, I was feeling smug. When Habazin hit the deck in the sixth, I thought this was going to be a barnstorming start to the year for me, I must admit. But, oh, well, there you go. Um, normally, uh, well, because of those damn two-minute rounds, Shields by UD is a pretty safe prediction. Um, that's probably the one I'll pick for most of her fights going forward. Um, <clears throat> I do actually have a slightly harder time making this pick. Not in terms of the winner. I'm confidently predicting Vladimir Shiskin. Um, but and whether it's a stoppage or a decision win. Um, Sierra, you know, he doesn't have much of a record as a professional. He hasn't fought much. He doesn't fight often. Um, there's really nobody of great consequence on his record. But the thing that makes me think about it a little bit, he has been in camp with some really good guys. He's been in mm. camp with Sergei Kovalev four times and Andre Ward once. Um, I obviously don't know what's happened in those camps, but, you know, as a pro, he's never been stopped or even knocked down. And it makes me think he's pretty durable. You don't get repeatedly invited to uh, a camp of a fighter of the caliber of Sergei Kovalev if you're not pretty durable and, you and, you know, you, you can't produce some good work. So that makes me think that, you know, he, he's probably going to be able to survive pretty well. Against that, though, Shiskin has shown that he not only hits hard, but that he's able to continue doing so late in a fight. I mean, he stopped Mohammadi late in that fight, for example. He doesn't appear to be someone who starts out strong and wears out. So... 
I was going back and forth. I was tempted to pick Sierra to last the distance, but I'm going to go with Shishkin with a late stoppage. Very late, in fact. I think he stops him standing up in the very last round. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I struggled with this as well, mostly because there's so little footage of Sierra available. Yeah. So I mostly have to go off his record, plus some brief clips that I found where I saw that he throws a nice right uppercut inside. And that's about all I've got in terms of scouting. Um, he, he hasn't been active. He hasn't beaten many opponents you've heard of. He doesn't have anywhere near the amateur resume of Shishkin. So Shishkin has to be the favorite here. Uh, however, we noted after his showbox appearance in August, Shishkin showed us no inside game. Doesn't mean he doesn't have it. He just didn't show it at all. I hate to read too much into one nice right uppercut I saw in a single Sierra fight, uh, but it might be that on the inside, Sierra can outfight Shishkin, uh, but it would be a huge leap of faith for me to pick him based on that. Uh, I, I wouldn't put money on this one because I don't feel comfortable in my Sierra scouting, but if I have to make a pick, and I do, I'll say Shishkin is too much and breaks him down. I'll go with Shishkin by knockout in the seventh. Okay. Um, and, uh, and and by the way, regarding fight picks, uh, a couple of people asked on Twitter about Showtime and DraftKings for 2020. I have some inside information, but nothing is official, so we shouldn't say anything except to say, stay tuned. We should have an announcement soon. Uh, breaking news, news will break soon. <laughs> exactly. Welcome to journalism in the modern age. Right. Video at 11. Day to be determined. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So not too many other fights to look forward to next weekend, although a couple do stand out. Uh, on Saturday, Elida Alvarez looks to bounce back from defeat to Sergei Kolev uh, against Michael Seals, while in the co-main on that card, Felix Verdejo can continues his effort to put what had once been such a promising career back on course as he takes on Manuel Rojas over 10 rounds in the lightweight division. Uh, that card is on ESPN from the Turning Stone Resort and Casino, just over the Adirondacks for me here in Vermont. A nice little four-hour drive. Um, but even nearer to you than that is to me, the biggest fight of the weekend, especially for those of us here on the Showtime Boxing Podcast, sees Julian J. Rock Williams, trained by our friend and frequent collaborator, Stephen Breadman Edwards, take on Jason Rosario at the Leacura Center. That's right, yes, in Williams' yes. hometown of yep. Philadelphia. Uh, so, Eric, on paper, Williams looks like he should have too much for Rosario. Uh, they do have a common opponent, Nathaniel Gallimore, whom Williams recently outpointed, but who stopped Rosario in six. Uh, Rosario recently scored a split decision win over Jorge Cota, whom Jamel Charlo fustigated in three rounds. Um, so on paper, statistically, would suggest that Rosario is just a step or two below the top level. Um, Williams certainly seems to agree. Uh, he said of his opponent that, quote, I think he's an ambitious kid. But I don't think it's a difficult fight, to be quite honest. I just think it's a matter of being focused and on top of my game. And I think I'll take care of him. I don't think it's difficult, though. I doubt very much that Breadman will be encouraging that kind of thought. But <laughs> yeah. uh, is he right? Uh, or does Rosario, you think, pose a real challenge to him and to a possible matchup with Charlo? Uh, I, I think he's right. I think this is a let's have a successful homecoming kind of title defense. Uh, hopefully, J-Rock isn't taking it lightly. And uh, as you uh, hinted there, if we know Breadman, he won't let him take it lightly. Uh, but they seem to be a level or two apart. Uh, although uh, Nathaniel Gallimore, who Rosario lost to, he isn't bad. Uh, nope. And uh, Rosario has wins over Justin Deloach, Jamonte Clark. He, he's a competent fighter. Um, but the bookmakers have J-Rock as a 22-1 to 1 favorite and uh, Rosario as an 8-1 to 1 dog. So you can see how the sports books make money. Um, but <laughs> you, you split the difference there, and that means they're saying it's about a 15-1 to 1 fight. And... Uh, 
Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Um, very clear favorite here. Um, I, I wish I could go to this one. It's uh, only about a half hour drive from my home. Uh, I would like to support our boy Breadman and uh, take in some live boxing, but I will be traveling next weekend, so uh, I'll watch this on TV like the rest of the common folk. Ah, there you go. All right, uh, almost done here. Just a few news items to touch on. First, an item that may already be out of date by the time our listeners hear this. It had initially been thought that there wouldn't be any kind of a joint press tour for the February 22nd Deontay Wilder-Tyson Fury rematch. But it turns out there will be at least one joint appearance. The two heavyweights will appear in downtown Los Angeles on Monday in what will almost certainly be an understated affair. Uh, very boring. Boring. Don't expect either of them Nothing to say anything interesting no. or scream bomb squat at the top of their lungs or anything <laughs> like right. that. No. Uh, next item, Josh Taylor who won the World Boxing Super Series 140-pound tournament last year and is surely, at the very least, knocking on the door of pound-for-pound lists. Uh, I have him at number nine on mine. Not sure if he cracks yours, Kieran, or if you've... uh, not given any thought to pound-for-pound pound lists since you stopped formally compiling them? Okay. <laughs> well, uh, then that makes it official. Unanimously, we agree he's number nine. Um, <laughs> signed to me. <laughs> uh, Taylor has signed a deal with Top Rank, which uh, got him on Max Unboxing this week. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, oh. uh, it opens the door to a possible unification with Jose Ramirez and conceivably a welterweight clash with Terrence Crawford. Although there do seem to be some threats of lawsuits flying regarding exactly how free Taylor was to sign with top rank. Uh, And last thing, speaking of the World Boxing Super Series, they finally set the date for their second cruiserweight final between Myros Bredas and Junior Dorticos. Uh, That had been held up because of sanctioning body demands that Bredas give a rematch to Krzysztof Klawacki after their semifinal ended in controversy. But after some legal back and forth, Bradis has elected to go with the WBSS final with only Dorticosis alphabet strap, as well as the WBSS trophy up for grabs. That fight will be on March 21st in Riga, Latvia, and will stream on DAZN. Kieran, thoughts on any or all of those items? Uh, so nothing to say about the press conference, because as you said, events will soon overtake us, and nothing I can say will be remotely as interesting or as lively <laughs> as whatever's going to unfold on that dais. Um, glad to see that the Bredis Dortico situation is resolved. Um, you know, if it is remotely as good as the other two finals of this mm-hmm. season, in Oe Donair and Taylor Progre, it'll be a very successful second season indeed. This was actually one of those rare occasions where it's hard to be mad at the sanctioning body for what it tried to do. I mean, the way that Bredis Klovatsky unfolded was... Well, suboptimal, to put it mildly. For those who don't recall, um, Bredis stopped Glavatsky in the third round after a crazy second round, in which Glavatsky rabbit-punched Bredis. Bredis responded with an elbow to the chin that dropped Glavatsky, which referee uh, Robert Byrd didn't catch, um, at least initially, before then figuring out what happened and then deducting a point. And then Bredis floored Glavatsky again with a punch that was way, way, way after the bell, not because he was uh, fouling, but because Robert Byrd didn't hear the bell to stop the round. So um, it was just a crazy, crazy fight. Um, in those circumstances, it probably wasn't unreasonable to require a rematch, um, but it does seem like a solution has been found to appeal to all parties. Um, and it has been, and as you sort of alluded to, uh, promises to be quite uh, the few months for Josh Taylor, beating Progre, Regis Progre in the, in the final of the World Boxing Super Series. And then apparently, I'd missed this, he celebrated by getting himself into some kind of trouble, legal trouble. Hmm. Um, he apparently got highly intoxicated. And uh, ended up hurling racial and homophobic slurs at a nightclub bouncer, for Ooh. which which saw him uh, appearing in court and getting a little bit, bit of a fine. Uh, actions for which he has uh, expressed considerable contrition. I'm pleased to hear. Um, 
but and now with a signing, as you mentioned, uh, is actually uh, facing some legal challenges from Barry McGuigan's Cyclone promotions. But right. if he's able to get through that, um, it's a real coup for top rank, you know, not only because Taylor is a very good boxer and a big draw in the UK, um, but also, as you mentioned, there's some really good potential for him in the top rank uh, uh, stable. There's some great potential opposition. Um, I mean, Ramirez alone would be fantastic, but that would actually be a really good opponent at 147 for Crawford. That would be the first opponent for Crawford of late to get him, get you really pretty excited. So. Yeah, yeah. Like you, I I missed that uh, outside the ring trouble that he got into. <laughs> they did a good job of burying that news, I guess, yeah. or, or we just weren't paying attention. But um, but yeah, your comment on the uh, the cruiserweight finals is similar to what I was thinking that every WBSS finals match is exceeding our expectations yeah. and. And my expectations are, are pretty high anyway for uh, for Bredis Tortico. So uh, yeah, that that's one uh, I'm looking forward to. But uh, looking looking at all these news items here, uh, aside from the outdated news about whatever trouble Taylor got into, uh, we have uh, no no negative news here this week. No deaths, no car accidents, nobody headed yeah. to jail. All positive. 2020 is going to be a wonderful year. I can feel it. Exactly. What what could boxing possibly do? <laughs> To change that storyline. No, nothing. 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 It's all good. It's yeah. all good. All right. That will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to uh, cover all the stories of fighters who are going to go to jail in the next week. <laughs> and we will also recap the Showbox card and Williams versus Rosario. And we will look ahead as well to the first Showtime Championship Boxing card of the year as Danny Garcia takes on Ivan Redcap. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>